Our scripture reading for today is 1 Samuel chapter 1, verses 1 to 20. Listen now to the word of the Lord. There was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zoph, an Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Panina. And Panina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Panina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion, because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The word of the Lord. The Lord be with you. Pray with me. Gracious God, we thank you for this day that you have made. We thank you for your presence with us 
and we thank you for this community. Help us to be for one another as you are for us. And now in the hearing of your word, give us the strength, the knowledge, the grace, and the joy that whatever troubles might be in our spirit, we may rise up and eat and go our way and be no longer sad. We ask in the name of Jesus Christ, our risen Lord. Amen. Last Sunday, we heard the story of Moses and Moses telling the people of Israel, the great Shema, Shema Israel. Listen up, everybody. Here's the final word. The Lord our God, the Lord is one, the Lord alone. God, the one and only. After having been enslaved for 400 years as slaves in Egypt, and then after another 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, the people finally enter the promised land. And our reading takes place decades later when the people have fought many wars and battles and have settled now somewhat precariously in the land. This period in the history of Israel is known as the era of the judges. And while it was occasionally peaceful and prosperous under occasional charismatic tribal leaders, most of it was chaotic and dangerous. In fact, the last few chapters in the book of Judges contain some of the most horrific passages in the entire Bible. There is civil war and genocide and unspeakable violence against women, including kidnapping, sexual assault, and bodily mutilation. The period of Judges is well characterized by the concluding words in the book. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his eyes. It's the wild, wild west, and the loose confederacy of tribes is an absolute mess, internally with spiritual decline and externally with military threats all around. It was a very dangerous and difficult time to be alive. And it is into this moment, into this particular moment of existential crisis, both personally and nationally, that we are told this story of Hannah and her family. Hannah, is described, she describes herself as a woman troubled in spirit because as she says, I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord and I've been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. She is troubled in spirit because she has no children. But even more so because her suffering has been made worse by the people around her. First, consider her husband, Elkanah. He is introduced as an Ephrathite with the names of four generations ahead of him, reminding us of the importance of generations and of children. Elkanah is also described as a pious man, one who takes his family on annual trips to the city of Shiloh to worship. Furthermore, while he favors Hannah in giving her a double portion of food, he is a fair-minded husband in obedience to the law, a good father apparently giving a fair portion of the sacrifice to his second wife, Penina, and her children. All in all, I think one could do much worse than Elkanah as a husband. But even though he is well-intentioned, 
Like most husbands, and I'm confident that this is just not me, he does not understand the depths of his wife's pain. This is when all the wives can say amen. When someone is in pain, usually the best thing that you can do is be quiet and sit with them and maybe give them a hug. Hannah's suffering has been going on for year after year after year after year. And when she wept and when she couldn't eat again, what does Elkanah do? You would think that after years of this, he would have learned a few things. That he would be a little more emotionally sensitive to his wife's needs. But instead, he asks her, rapid fire, a series of meaningless questions without waiting for a reply. Hannah, why do you weep? Why don't you eat? Why are you sad? Am I not better than having ten sons? He cannot fathom why she can be so sad and in pain, especially when he thinks he's been a good husband, that he is better than having ten sons. He does not realize that though he may be a good husband, perhaps the most important person in her life, he does not realize that he alone cannot be enough. Some have suggested that he could have saved himself. He had asked that last question instead of, am I not more to you than ten sons? If he had said instead, you, Hannah, are more to me than ten sons. Had he asked that question, perhaps she might have given him a response. I know that over the years, I've been guilty of asking similarly clueless questions to the women in my life. To my mother, to my wife, to my daughter, my sisters. I've asked, what's wrong? When it was so obvious to everyone exactly what was wrong. I have asked, why do you let this bother you so much? It's nothing. When I should have just simply empathized. I have asked, why can't you just let this slide? when I should have had the hard conversations. And when I have asked those questions over the years, the response I got was exactly what Elkanah got and probably deserved. Silence. In my mind, I don't think it was just silence. I think it was silence accompanied by an exasperated death stare, right? As if with her eyes, she's screaming at you. Seriously, you're going to ask me that now? Are you kidding me? That's her husband. Then there's Panina, the second wife who's described as Hannah's rival. In ancient Israel and in many ancient cultures, as you know, uh, women were valued largely, if not entirely, for their ability to produce children, and in particular sons. Because they're necessary, you know, to work the farm, to pass on the family name, and for various uh, inheritance laws. And they became a kind of a social security uh, as you got older to take care of you. 
And so we understand today, of course, that having children requires more than just the uh, part of the women, that men are involved in it. Um, but in those days, women were held entirely responsible whether or not a couple could have children. And so when a woman could not bear children, she was blamed and often considered cursed by God or by the gods. And it was the grounds for either divorce or taking on a second wife. And I think that's what may have happened here. That when Hannah could not bear children, probably Elkanah's family said, hey, you need to have children, so take on a second wife. Perhaps Hannah, she herself may have suggested a second wife so that they could have children. And so Elkanah took on a second wife, even though we are told that he loved Hannah because it was more important to have children than the love that they shared as husband and wife. And I suppose in some parallel universe, the two women could have been friends, good friends, and have shared and commiserated in their hardships. Panina, because she was not loved, even though she did everything right in her situation in terms of you know, producing children. And Hannah, because even though she's loved, she could not bear children. But like similar stories in the scriptures, like of Sarah and Hagar, Rachel and Leah, we can imagine how Panina felt. That even though she did what she was supposed to do, her husband does not love her as much as Hannah. And so we are told that she provoked Hannah grievously to irritate her, to provoke her, and that this went on for year after year. So we can imagine just the, the kind of life, the tension in this family. And while we cannot excuse her cruelty toward Hannah, we can at least be, have some sense of why she might do so. And then there is Eli the priest. It's telling how bad things have gotten in Israel in this time of the judges because Eli assumes that people come to worship totally drunk and wasted. His, not, his response is not what we would call good pastoral care. He calls her a worthless woman, or more literally, a daughter of Belial. And that is the name that is used to describe his evil sons later in the book. And it's the name that will be used to describe Satan in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. If someone were to call you a worthless person, I doubt many of us would respond as calmly as Hannah did. Somehow she's able to remain self-composed and to calmly explain why he's mistaken with his accusation. And to his credit, when Eli realizes that he's made a mistake, he offers her a powerful word. He tells her, go in peace and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made of him. Go in peace and the God of Israel grant your petition. For me, I can tell you that this is a great comfort to me as a minister, that even though I might be clueless and emotionally insensitive and judge people wrongly, that I can still speak a meaningful word. That in spite of myself, that a good word might still be communicated. Now, Eli's word... God grant the petition that you have made can be interpreted 
in one of two ways. He could be giving her a prophetic word. That is, go in peace and the God of Israel will grant the petition that you have made. He's promising her that God will grant what you have asked. A prophetic word. Or it could be a word of hope. As in, go in peace and may the God of Israel grant you the petition that you have laid before him. This is not wishful thinking on Eli's part, but rather a benediction. He's insisting that God will answer her, or at the very least, that God should answer the needs and the prayers of his children. And ironically, Eli has no ideas that in answering Hannah's prayer, Eli's own family, their part in the priesthood will come to an end. We wonder, what did Hannah hear? Did she hear a promise that God will grant her prayers? Or did she hear the hope, the wish that God would grant her her wish? Perhaps she heard a little bit of both. John Kessler, in his memoir, A Stranger in the House of God, makes the observation that when children ask their parents for something, the bigger it is, the more vague and ambiguous the parent's answer becomes. Isn't this true? Mom, can I have an extra hot dog for lunch? Yeah, sure, no problem. Dad, can I get a new bike for my birthday? Mm, we'll see. It leaves you with hope because it's not a no, so maybe you'll get that bike. But you're also disappointed because it's not an immediate yes. There is room for both hope and disappointment. And maybe Hannah, too, was caught somewhere in between hope and disappointment. But whatever it was that she heard from Eli, we are told in verse 18 that Hannah went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. You know, if I were writing this Bible, if I were making a movie or writing a novel or something like that, I would end it right there. She went her way, she ate, and she was no longer sad. Credits. That's it. I wouldn't mention that in due time, she gave birth to a son. Because her transformation does not require it. Her joy is not because she has a son. I mean, that's nice. It's icing on the cake. But the radical transformation that she experiences is after she hears the word from Eli. God grant your petitions. May God grant your petitions. She was able to pour out her heart in prayer. She heard a word, a benediction, and that was enough. Her husband is not enough. Ten sons are not enough. But the word of the Lord was enough. Having a son is great. But she needed something more than that. What we see here is that her prayer that day, that she prayed to God, in that moment remains unanswered. 
but she herself has been changed by offering that prayer. It did not result in some miraculous encounter with God. That prayer did not lead to an encounter with God in a a burning bush. No angels appeared to give her some promise. Nothing happened other than a clueless priest saying, God bless you, basically. That's it. And yet, everything for her changed. She was able to leave that place of worship in the great shalom, peace of God. You know, when we are in pain and in distress, we have options. And most of us, we we typically will lash out or we will try to numb that pain with all sorts of addictions. Hannah could have taken a very different path. She could have gone the way of Sarah and suggest a surrogate to carry a child for her and then drive them both out in a fit of jealous rage. She could have chosen the path of Rachel, competing with her older sister Leah for children, insisting that her husband give her children until she die, or lest she die, a self-fulfilling prophetic word for herself. She could have retaliated against Panina. She could have retaliated against her children. She could have blamed her husband. Instead, she chose prayer. She chose prayer because she understood what all of us, what all people of faith must understand, that our problems ultimately are not the circumstances of our lives. It is not our culture which devalues, in Hannah's case, her value as a human being, as nothing more really than a womb for caring children. Of course, it doesn't help when the people around her failed her. But she chose prayer because she realizes we all must that ultimately our problems are not the people around us, it's not the culture around us, not even our enemies. It is God. It is God. In our reading, Hannah's lack of children is attributed twice to the fact that the Lord had closed the womb. The Lord had closed her womb. Now, on the one hand, of course, this is a mistaken medical diagnosis. We know that there are any number of physiological or medical reasons why someone may not be able to have children. But on the other hand, it's also a theological claim. It is the acknowledgement, at the very least, that God is the author of all life. That God is the one to whom all life belongs. And so she prays. She prays. Not in a theologically sound, carefully written liturgical prayer that we might use in worship, in a regular worship, but a prayer that comes straight from the heart. It's what we call a lament prayer, a prayer that is the most common prayer in the Bible. It's the prayer that people make when they are desperate, when they are in so much anguish and there's nothing else left to do. This is how you pray when you are a woman or a man troubled in spirit. You know, just the other day, um, my wife was talking with someone 
who shared with her how she was so angry with God right now because of all the, the incredibly difficult challenges in her life, which to her seems unfair. And my wife encouraged her to keep being angry, to keep being angry with God. Because when you're angry with God, it means you're still talking to God. That there's no need to pretend you're not angry. It's not like God wouldn't know. Jesus said, ask and it shall be given you. Knock and the door will be opened to you. But as someone has said, until you have stood knocking at the door until your knuckles are bloody, you have not really known what prayer is. And I think that's the kind of prayer that Hannah is offering. That when you are in distress, you cannot really offer up carefully worded, polite requests. I can remember a few years ago, um, I was in the ER, and my stomach felt like it was about just, just about to burst. And I consider myself a pretty calm and composed person. But I can tell you, that morning, I did not ask nicely for relief. It was not a good look for me as I cried out in pain. I, right? I mean, you just screaming just because that's all that you're capable of. That's the prayer that Hannah offers. And the thing that's, I think, really, really remarkable is that in her distress, she makes this vow. Now, I know when people are desperate, we say all kinds of things, we make all kinds of promises. And she promises here that, God, if you give me a son, I will give him back to you. I will give him back to you. And this is the incredible part of the vow for me. Because she does not ultimately want a son for herself. She's not asking for a son for all the usual reasons that people in her day wanted a son. She does not want a son to make her life easier, to increase her wealth, to elevate her status, to have some social security for herself in her old age. She wants a child so that she can be released from her shame. Certainly, that's true. But more than that, she wants a child for God's service. And how many of us have made that kind of prayer for our children? I think Hannah discovered that day that though her husband is not enough, though ten sons will not be enough, that God is enough. Not the answer to her prayers, but the prayer itself was enough to bring her a measure of peace so that she could return to her home, so that she could eat once more, and that she could have joy in her life once again. The lesson for us, I think, of this prayer is not that she prayed and got her wish. The lesson is not that if you pray hard enough and fervently and sincerely enough that God will be forced to, to be moved to answer you in the way that you want. We know that this is not true. We have all known that this is not true. It cannot be true if God is to be free and sovereign. But we see in Hannah someone who came to trust in God's absolute sovereignty, that God's will will be done, and yet somehow that 
absolute will is intertwined with her freedom to ask and that God might be moved to her petitions. That somehow, in some mysterious and paradoxical way, both God's sovereignty and human freedom are preserved. Somehow, God knows and yet God might answer my prayers. To paraphrase Dietrich Bonhoeffer, this is what enables us to pray with boundless confidence because we have the certainty that God knows what we need before we even ask. We see in Hannah someone who has come to know God and therefore refuses to be defeated by the circumstances in her life which may or in all likelihood not change. Instead of allowing the circumstances of her life to dictate the trajectory of her life, she instead turned it over to God and trusted that God would answer her. If God answered what was missing in her life with a son, wonderful. But if God did not answer that prayer, she's still at peace. She is still at peace. She will trust that God knows her needs and will answer accordingly. She will accept that God is going to be enough for her and for her life. Look what happens afterwards. She goes home. She goes about her daily life. She gets together with her husband. They hang out. They have a child. This is no miraculous virgin birth. This is not someone who is beyond childbearing age. They have a child in the normal way that everyone typically has a child. She went about her life in daily faithfulness. She left it up to God, and then she went about her life in faithfulness. And when the time came, she kept her vow, and she will return this child back to God. She gave to God what she could not control in her life. And she controlled what she could. She prayed and she kept her vows. I think that's faith. I think that's how we persevere through chaotic times. Maybe you find yourself today troubled in spirit. Certainly there's a lot to be troubled about. Not just personally, but nationally in the world. Maybe some of you have been going through long periods of discouragement and disappointment. And maybe you have people in your life who are well-intentioned but have said some insensitive things to you. Maybe you have people around you who are your rivals, who are actively seeking your harm. When you go back to school, when you go back to work, and maybe even when you go back to your homes, those troubles, those people, they're all still going to be there. Nothing might change tomorrow morning. But my invitation to you today is to pray in faith, to cry out, to lament in your hearts, in your spirits. Use whatever words come to mind. Whatever you think will make your life whole or better, entrust that to God. 
Entrust that to God. Because whatever you think is missing that will make your life better isn't if God is not enough for you. It's fine if you are troubled in spirit. And maybe in those prayers, you will discover that God is enough for you and that you will then find the strength to go on your way, to eat so that your face is no longer sad. And before you leave church today, I hope you will hear a word, a word of affirmation. Maybe in the sermon, maybe in the songs we sang, maybe in a conversation in the hallways of the fellowship hall that will give you an affirmation of all that you have been crying out. Go in peace. The Lord grant you your petitions. Pray with me. Lord, we thank you for the example of Hannah and her trust. And like her, God, I would ask that all of us today in this moment would just cry out to you to lay before you whatever it is that we are missing in our lives, whatever we think might make us whole. And would you help us to know that you are enough? Would you help us to know that you hear our prayers and that you are with us when we are troubled in spirit? God, let your spirit calm our troubled spirits. We ask in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.